Um, what is preventing, you know, rifle accuracy from being perfect? Oh, lots of things. Um, but there's a few places to start uh, finding a way into this. Uh, we'll start with the bullet. I mean, we're dealing with something that is, you know, it's made of multiple parts um, by machines that are graded on economics. So, you know, high volume, high production rate machinery is making things that are multiple parts and spinning at hundreds of thousands of RPM. And what, you know, one of the most basic elements of dispersion is uh, from imbalance of a bullet. And, you know, bullets don't have much imbalance, but any amount that is non-zero is going to contribute to dispersion. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. Alrighty, folks, today on the show, we have Mr. Brian Litz. Um, Brian, I would consider yours to be the greatest mind in, in ballistics today. I don't know if you'd agree with that or not, but, uh, you, you've learned and explained things about the flight of a projectile that, uh, frankly, I don't have the intellect to even begin to wonder to ask. And, uh, it's, it's been a fascinating journey that you've been on. Tell me a little bit about, about yourself and how you got into this. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, I mean, it's always been, you know, shooting, not just shooting, but honestly hitting targets with whatever is in my hands has always been uh, part of what's, what's got me going, um, you know, slingshots, bow and arrows, pellet guns as a kid, and then, um, you know, just bigger and higher power uh, things as I got older, it turned, you know, taking the form lately of ELR rifles. Um, but it's always been about hitting targets fundamentally. Um, when I was in high school, considering, you know, what I might, what I might do with my future, I thought, well, I want to, you know, go to ballistic school. Well, they don't really have, you know, most mo- major universities don't have ballistics classes, but I learned that what, you know, what it's called in the general world is like aerospace engineering. And so that's what I went to Penn State for, um, got a degree in aerospace engineering. And at that time, um, you know, I was still highly interested in shooting, but through college, you know, I didn't have the time or money to really compete very much. Um, and so, you know, I got out of college and but the first thing I did was apply to all the uh, bullet companies. You know, I wanted to work for a bullet company designing and testing bullets. And, you know, I didn't really have a reputation yet at that point. I hadn't even published any articles yet. So, you know, they were all like, no, we're good. You know, nobody, nobody was hiring. And so I worked, um, in the, in the civilian side of the Air Force for a while as a contractor um, doing modeling and simulation of threat air weapons. And, you know, that was right up my alley, except there was really no live fire portion to it. You know, the modeling and simulation, the more expensive things are, the more heavily you rely on modeling and simulation. Um, so did that for six years. And during that time now, uh, I was able to get back into competition and started writing articles and uh, my first book in 2009. And that really is what changed things for me um, in a big way because, you know, I had started a young family as well. And the idea of leaving a, 
you know, secure government job for, you know, to go work in the firearms industry was kind of, you know, not the most conservative move, but, um, you know, I knew that's where my passion was. That's where my dreams were. So, you know, I took the plunge and, um, the, the offer that I had was from Burger Bullets to be the chief ballistician. Um, so, and I am still employed by Burger, still doing that job. But in the meantime, my company Applied Ballistics has really taken off. Um, you know, I started it just to publish my first book under, you know, my, my friends told me I should have an LLC if I'm going to be selling a book. So that was really all the more, all the further I thought it would go. And then, but after that book was published, there was, you know, it was really well received and really opened the door to a lot more things that I can do with Applied Ballistics. And, you know, in the ensuing years, we've gotten into software licensing and you know, integrating software into Kestrels and rangefinders and all kinds of stuff like that. So things kind of got away from me a bit <laughs> from what I intended to where they actually went. Um, and obviously, I've made some uh, really good partners, business partners along the way who have, you know, taken over major parts of this. So it's not like I'm doing it all by myself. But um, what I do like to stay close to is, you know, the science, um, the flight of bullets, measuring the flight of bullets as far and accurately as possible so that those measurements can be turned around into accurate models that we use as fire solutions. Um, so that's that's where my focus has always been. It's where it still is. And uh, that's probably more than maybe more than you intended when you asked the question, but I just figured I'd lay it all out there. <laughs> Well, just like what you're talking about, where you start out with intentions and then uh, things end up where they end up. Look, I run a podcast. My best laid intentions never go as planned. Conversations go their own way. And, and so does every other aspect of life, right? And, and sometimes the bullets I shoot don't go where I intend them to either. That's just the reality of it. Um, yep. Yeah. So I, you know, I started out in a, in a ranching and hunting community and the type of shooting that we did there was very, very Kentucky. It was effective for what we were trying to do. And I, I was confident in my shooting ability for what I was asking of that ability. My next step into shooting was being a M1A1 platoon commander in the Marine Corps. So my, my ballistics uh, requirement changed dramatically. It scaled up in some really interesting ways. And I still don't know what the ballistic coefficient is of a Sabo round, but it's got to be impressive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I bet we could figure it out. Oh yeah, we could get close anyway. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And and that was really interesting shooting. Tank shooting was was fascinating. Um, we had, you know, complex firing firing solutions that the computer could do, but we also needed to back that up with with our analog systems and be able to to make our own shot corrections, you know, just by what we were able to to mill out with our reticles and things like that. Coming out of the Marine Corps. I got into more, more competitive shooting and in higher levels of hunting. And, uh, and now I work with, uh, with a number of companies that you do as well. So applied ballistics, um, provides the algorithm for the rangefinders that Sig Sauer makes, which are absolutely fantastic. Um, can't thank you enough for what you've done to, you know, pair with that, with that engine, if, if you will, to, to make such a rapid firing solution. I'm seeing so many similarities now in the technology that we have for hunting with the technology that I had inside the Abrams. And I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. SIG has been a great partner and they, um, you know, they, they're constantly innovating. Um, they, they're not afraid to invest a lot to, um, you know, make sure they've got the latest, greatest technology out there. Uh, the 10 K rangefinder is one of their latest. And I mean, you know, the pace of electronics, like you were just saying, it's coming fast these days. And, you know, if you, if you want to buy something this year and, and get used to it and get to know it, and that be your solution for the next three to five years, I mean, you can, um, but during, in that three to five years, you know, your, whatever you buy today is probably going to be obsoleted in a short time. doesn't mean it doesn't work or isn't effective, just that there'll be something new and better in some way that comes out. That's just how electronics and Moore's law is, is taking us. But yeah, I'm really grateful for partners like SIG that, and, and we have many of them that integrate our ballistic software. Um, I think, you know, it's obviously been good for us. 
I, I like knowing that our fire solutions are helping a lot of shooters hit targets because I really think it is the best um, option out there considering all the data that we collect with the Doppler radar and the mobile lab. I, I think that it's it's good to have a standardized system across the board also. So if you go from a SIG rangefinder to, you know, a Vortex binocular rangefinder to a Kestrel, like you get the same answer across all of that instead of having like each of them have a different engine with different data, different interface. And like, you know, you never know what you're getting. At least, you know, we are that common denominator of the firing solution. And then those products are differentiated by their own performance, you know, be it glass clarity or, you know, range performance on the rangefinder or what have you. Yeah. Doppler is, uh, is a pretty incredible tool. Um, the first time that I got to be around that was right after I had finished, um, finished basically all of my formal training and I headed out to Camp Lejeune to, to pick up a platoon and, and to start doing the thing, if you will. And my platoon wasn't, wasn't ready yet. That, that Lieutenant who is um, commanding that platoon still had, uh, about a month left. So they didn't really know what to do with me. So they sent me up to the Aberdeen proving grounds in Maryland, um, to test out a new tank round. And that ended up being the primary main gun round that we used when we were deployed in Afghanistan. And that was the MPHE oh, cool. multi-purpose high explosive round. And when I got there, it was, it was absolute chaos. And I don't know like who lets Marines do the things that they do, but there was a bunch of, uh, senior, senior enlisted Marines and they're at Aberdeen and they just had all of these like spare tanks, a lot of Soviet vehicles, um, and they're just lobbing rounds downrange. And they're like, well, trying to hit it at the base of the turret at 3000 meters and see what happens. I was like, boys, boys, hold on. Like there's this thing <laughs> called the scientific method. It's been around for a minute and it's really solid. We need to, we need to establish what the experiment is here. If we're going to learn effectively from these hugely expensive projectiles that we're lobbing down there and getting to watch for the first time in my life, what that projectile was doing on Doppler and be able to slow it down and really analyze it from the moment it came out of that 17, seven inch smooth bore, 120 millimeter cannon to when it actually impacted the target or vehicle downrange, and then seeing what the terminal performance was and the different types of settings we could put on that round. Holy cow. I, I was fascinated. Like I, I couldn't get enough of it. Um, and now you're being able to take that same technology and help competitive shooters who are trying to put around on paper or steel and hunters who are trying to put around inside of an animal so that they can kill that thing as effectively and as ethically as possible to bring that meat home to their family. What an incredible thing. What an incredible thing. I think it's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do as well. You know, we, we use time of flight measurements for, you know, a number of years before we got Doppler radar and, you can you can be extremely accurate and precise with time of flight measurements um, in terms of like getting a BC between two points. Um, but what you the caveat there is you're incredibly accurate to the point that you measured it at. Right. Um, but what happens like how you got there and what happens after that? It's basically you have two points and you connect them and you have a straight line. But in reality. Um, you know, the velocity decay, uh, you know, the drag curve, there's nothing that's really linear between those two points. And that's where the, the Doppler radar shows you, like, it's operating at such a high frequency that it's, it's pinging the bullet several times each foot of its flight as it flies downrange. And so it's really way more data than you really need, but it stitches together a continuous picture of how that bullet's flying and the things that are affecting it for better or worse. You know, you can look at a radar track and you know, so tell certain attributes of like, oh, those are, you know, that's a good 10 shot group. Those bullets are consistent. They're stable. They're, you know, well-behaved. But likewise, you can look at a track and say, you know, pick out the problems, whether it's inconsistency or just low performance. Um, it's, it's like, it's like a motion picture versus a comic book. You know, you can see a whole lot more detail. And it helps us do a whole lot more than just characterize those projectiles for modeling, too. It helps us troubleshoot the design process, helps us understand launch dynamics. Um, it's just a great tool for troubleshooting and diagnosing and learning about external ballistics. 
Well, and what was so critical for us, and it, it was a time of flight issue, but it was, you know, Doppler was helping us with that in the ways that you're describing. But with that particular round, it, it had three settings, and I'm not going to get into the details of all of it because I honestly don't know what's classified anymore. But <laughs> one of the settings um, allowed that uh, allowed that round to burst before and above the target and shower down like 1,100 number four shot pellets downwards. Uh, and that was super cool because say you've got a sniper firing at you from on top of a building and you don't want to hurt the people or whatever infrastructure is inside the building. Well, now you can shoot that thing and it's going to blow up right before and right above the target. And, you know, anything that's soft in that area is, is going to, you know, commence having a, a seriously bad day. But in order to do yeah. that, that cartridge needed to know how many times it was going to turn as it was going down range. And, and that's how it knew when it needed to blow up. Cause there was no communication between the projectile and the vehicle at that point, or the gun at that point, it was right. So the projectile doesn't know what range it's at. It doesn't know, like there's probably a proximity fuse maybe to know where, when it's near the target, but yeah, it's strange that how counting revolutions is actually the most accurate way for that thing to know where it's at. Totally. And, and doing so coming out of a smooth bore. Um, I wish that we could yeah. scale that technology because the smooth bore was so incredible with what it did with the tank. You know, my, my accuracy, you know, w was astonishing coming out of a, of a smooth bore cannon. Um, but it was a thin stabilized projectile and we simply can't do that if we scale it down to say, you know, 6.5 millimeter. Yeah. Yeah. There's, you can, but the challenges of things uh, at that scale are, are way different. Um, the Sabo discard is, is one thing like it, in order to have a Sabo discard process that doesn't, um, you know, kick the main projectile around, you need to have certain weight ratios. Like your projectile has got to be many times heavier than your Sabo or else the mass of the Sabo interferes with it. And that's easy. It's an easy arrangement to achieve at a large scale, but at a small scale, you know, between the, the, the weight of your Sabo and also the energetics of your muzzle blast, it's, it just works out that it's way more difficult, but I'm holding out hope. That's one of those things like for a future time when we have, you know, we have some downtime, we've always talked about working out Sabos for smaller, smaller calibers. So someday we'll see what we can do with it. All right. Well, you've got my number. Um, before we, we get too far into the weeds of this stuff, um, I want to briefly talk about internal, external terminal ballistics, just talk about what they are. And then I want to get into answering all the follower questions. Cause that's really important to me that the people that took the time to ask these questions, get those questions satisfied. Yep. Uh, okay. So internal ballistics. Right. So you want me to just like give my view of the three categories? Totally. Okay. So internal, external, and terminal ballistics. Um, internal is typically everything that happens from the time the powder lights up from a primer in the chamber, starts building pressure, and things start to move um, all the way until the bullet clears the muzzle. Um, when the bullet exits the gun, it's no longer internal. It's now external. I would say if there's any gray area in that transition, it would be in that several bullet lengths out of the muzzle where you're still still dealing with back pressure from, you know, the muzzle blast. The bullet goes through some turbulence right there at the muzzle because of, you know, the air that it pushes out in front of it, the shock wave it has to go through. And so there's a few inches of uh, bumpy ride before it's in clean air. So that may be like a transition from internal to external. But then once the bullet's a few inches out of the muzzle, um, out of the blast, it's in clean air. And that's where external ballistics start. And external ballistics is the entire flight of the bullet through the air until it encounters something, until it hits something. And what happens at that point becomes terminal ballistics. Um, two big areas that terminal ballistics are most interesting in is um, as a, like lethality considerations on game and um, also human targets for police and law enforcement. They need to know what the stopping power is of a round. Um, likewise, hunters want to know what, you know, based on what type of bullet you're shooting, is, is that a fragmenting bullet that you want to shoot into the vitals? Is it a penetrating bullet? Like all those performance characteristics are um, attributes of terminal ballistics. 
And so that's one side of terminal is the lethality. Another side of terminal is uh, like barrier penetration or armor penetration. Like, you know, uh, this is big also in law enforcement. Like those guys need to know what their rounds will do on the other side of automotive glass, um, what will penetrate body armor so they know how to stay safe based on who they're fighting against and also how to defeat the armor, the people that are that they're shooting at. So um, all those are terminal sides. So yep, internal is in the gun, external is in the air, and terminal is what effect the bullet achieves on a target once it hits. Makes all the sense in the world. Okay. Uh, turbulence is one of the great mysteries of, of physics, I think, because it it's it's relatively unpredictable in some ways. And I think that's why those first couple inches are, are a little chaotic for that bullet. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. Turbulence is one of the problems. Um, pressure from the shock weight from, you know, back pressure from the behind the bullet trying to rush around in front of it is another problem. And of course, if there's any movement of the gun, which there's always some movement, then that can also affect the release and, and challenge that. So turbulence is one element of launch dynamics that you have to, you know, think about when you're designing for precision and accuracy. Gotcha. Within the hunting community, we tend to see a pickup in accuracy whenever somebody puts a silencer on their gun. As, as that bullet clears the crown of the muzzle and uncorks and starts to pass those baffles, is there a stabilizing factor to that, or is the accuracy pickup um, more of a human element? Um, in my opinion, the accuracy, the, the precision that you pick up from a suppressor has more to do with the weight of the suppressor on the end of the muzzle. Um, just by virtue of having mass with inertia, and it's hard to move, well, movement is something you want to minimize at the end of your barrel when you've got a bullet coming out. So I think that the beneficial um, accuracy from a suppressor is, is just due to its mass. Now, there, there may also be some, something with the gases too, but uh, I don't, because uh, I, I think it's, it's universal when you put a suppressor on, at least from what we've seen, that groups either stay the same or get better. Here's, here's something else we've noticed about suppressors is, that if you if you always go for the correct suppressor size, like you're shooting 30 caliber, so you run a 30 caliber can, it's going to have the, the a minimal aperture for that bullet uh, to in the design objective being to minimize decibels, I guess, because you want to minimize that clearance, slow down the gas coming out. But and from what we've seen, if you can get um, like oversize the baffles in your suppressor for what you're shooting. So shooting a 6.5 out of a 30 caliber can, I would expect that to improve or at least not hurt the precision. Um, but when you go like caliber for caliber, there I, we've seen cases where that has actually hurt the groups by putting on a can that the holes are too small. And when I say too small, it could be like, in our case, it was a 375 with 375 holes in the suppressor course they're a little little bigger than that but when the suppressor went to a 408 you know it was designed for 408 so the apertures were like maybe 420 or 430 that's when our 375 it actually shot better groups out of the suppressor with larger holes so maybe in that sense the turbulence uh maybe having a maybe playing a role there because i don't know what else would be affected by that small difference in hole size other than the gas flow around things um I'm not really an expert in suppressors. I'm just passing on what we've seen when sure. we tried them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And I know that adding weight to a rifle in general will, you know, have a tendency to make it more precise. It moves less during the barrel time. And as a fundamental first principle, that's a way to make rifles shoot better groups is to minimize how much they move during recoil. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. So if somebody's trying to maximize the precision capability of their firearm, maybe they shouldn't look for the lightest possible suppressor that's out there. Exactly. Yeah. I see suppressors advertised for like super lightweight and I get it. If you're, if it's a rifle, you're going to have to carry for miles on a hunt. That absolutely matters. Um, but for a target rifle, you know, if you just, Need it to if you just need to maximize precision. 
I mean, I would go for a heavy suppressor every day. Awesome. That's, that's great. Same with a barrel, you know, barrels, heavy barrels, all that. And, uh, yeah, the, it not only makes the gun more stable and easy to shoot well from the shooter's perspective, but even inside the time scale that a shooter can't perceive, which is that barrel time, um, it's that mass is going to benefit you there too. And also the heat dissipation properties of mass, you know, especially on the barrel, um, mass just does a lot of good things for precision. Totally. Um, yeah, there's, there's some fundamental things like that, that simply cannot be replaced. And, uh, a, a lot of hunters, you know, kind of have the mindset of ultra light in everything, you know, going light, come out heavy. I tend to try to make guns a little bit heavier because I can shoot them better. They don't kick me as hard. Um, and I think that the heavier, the, the rifle I go in with a lot of times the heavier my pack is coming out because now I've got a critter with me. Okay. Next yeah. question is from, uh, fellow named Crassius. And, uh, he asks how big of a factor is humidity at most normal hunting ranges, say under 300 yards. Right. So humidity is a very interesting one. Um, so he said under 300 yards. Yep. Okay. So within 300 yards, you could more or less ignore humidity. Um, we, we, I'll just say that up front. The effects of humidity on the atmosphere are even minimal for when you shoot longer ranges. Even if you're shooting a thousand yards, humidity is by far the, the lowest thing on the list of things that affects things. Like going from zero to a hundred percent relative humidity only changes air density by like two and a half percent. So that's equivalent of affecting your BC by two and a half percent. Whereas like air pressure you know, you go from sea level to five or 10,000 feet and that's changing air density by, you know, five or 10%. It's really huge. Humidity is, is the least important of the atmospheric properties, but humidity has effects other than just on external ballistics and atmospherics. Um, we, we could go into a whole different subject of powder, uh, powder conditioning with humidity and you know both for hand loaders if your humidity is exposed to an environment that's uh, more or less moist than what the powder was sealed at from the factory the powder will acclimate to that over time it'll affect your hand loads but even once the powder's in the rounds of ammo if it if that ammo isn't hermetically sealed it's still going to be able to pick up or lose moisture based on what you store it in so, for example, if you have some ammo that you loaded with powder that was at 60% humidity and you store it for a long time in a dry environment, say 10 or 20% humidity, then it's very possible, very likely that when you take that ammo out and shoot it after it's been stored dry for a long time, that it's going to be quite faster, um, having lost the moisture out of it and able to burn faster. So, in Within 300 yards, though, I still think even if you pick up 50 feet per second from that, um, that's not going to—it's not going to affect your miss distance on a game-size animal at, uh, you know, 300 yards. Easy enough. So if you're hunting on inside 300 yards, don't worry about humidity. Yep. Yep. Inside 300, I would say you could—you could ignore pretty much everything except the, you know, getting the accurate range to your target. So you know, even then plus or minus 20 yards that you can probably easily guess at 300. Um, that's not going to kill you. Wind still not that big of a deal. I would say within 300 yards in a hunting scenario, um, your target moving is probably the biggest thing that assuming you've got a solid position to shoot from and you're not, you know, dealing with the big wobble. Um, if you've got a really good position, 300 yards, my biggest concern would be is the you know, is the thing moving? What's my lead? Because the, the other factors like wind and atmospheric differences, that's just not going to really factor in at 300. Gotcha. Okay. So Taylor W wants to know one caliber, uh, and I, I assume it means cartridge for hunting throughout North America and why? Uh, Boy, that's a loaded question because are you talking long range hunting? I know that he said across North America, that implies that your target set includes everything, you know, I guess up through grizzly bears and, 
um, you know, deer and thing, moose, elk. And yeah, I'm not, to be, to be honest, my involvement in ballistics doesn't really hinge on uh, dangerous game or anything like that. Tell you what is, and, and also is this for shooting at distance or not, or is it just what can kill things? I'm just kind of thinking out loud to really qualify my answer because it, it is a, a question you could go a lot of direct, a lot of different directions with. But, um, you know, I like the 300 Norma as a, as an all around general use, you know, it's definitely got the performance to carry energy to a long distance. Um, it's inherently precise. Um, you know, I've won matches with the 300 Norma ELR matches that went, you know, beyond 1500 meters. So you can definitely hit targets at a long distance. And, you know, the bullet that I load with it is the 245 Burger EOL. And that bullet, despite being 30 cal, and I know there's larger calibers for larger game, but that bullet's got a lot of ass. Um, it's 245 grains, so you could lose half of it in fragmentation, and you've still got, you know, a decent size of, of, of the base of the bullet to continue penetrating. And so I think, you know, have not being an expert in killing large game, I got to caveat that. I'm not going to talk out outside of what I know, but I think that round would um, would be a good round for you know for anything in North America, even at even if you have to shoot it at distance. Yeah, I I tend to agree with you. Um, the only caveat I would give is that uh, I always think that you should trend towards an ammo that you can find at your destination. And uh, for that reason, a 300 Win Mag is another really solid choice. Mm. But yeah, that's a good that's a good point there. Yeah, I'm I'm hopeful actually that 300 Norma starts to get a lot more proliferated, considering that it was selected as the Army's new sniper rifle. And anytime the the military does something like that, changes something new, um, the commercial market tends to get a lot more active around it, and the availability of components and ammo tends to be driven by that kind of thing so uh, maybe in the future it'll check that box for you but right now certainly trainer wind mag is way more available sure and then the 338 norma we're starting to see um in some machine gun platforms and when you have a high volume cartridge like that within the military uh, that means that those components are going to become increasingly available but yeah the the normal lines are are truly fantastic and and i'm with you i hope that that we get to see more and more of those uh okay so mr zach mauser asks at what yardage does ballistic coefficient really start to matter uh you know we talked earlier about 300 yards and i think that's a good 300 yards i think is a good place to to draw that line because inside of 300 yards there's a lot about your fire solution that um is not super critical like humidity even temperature and pressure at 300 yards isn't going to make that much of a difference and the, the difference it makes suppose it's a couple inches that that might be considered a lot at 300 yards since it's so short but it's a target still a target you know whatever size your target is a couple inches probably isn't going to make the difference between hitting or missing i mean you could damn near still make headshots at 300 with two inches of air and so the, it just stacks up that it's not that much of a of an error and also at out to 300 yards, like you can, those super fast, lightweight cartridges like the Varmint Hunting 22250, 220 Swift, you know, they'll scream for 300 yards. And after that, they kind of, that's where the um, super low ballistic coefficient really catches up with it. Because after 300 yards, those things, it gets real hard to hit <laughs> yeah. with those rounds somewhere between three and 400 yards. Um, so I would say that's, that would be my answer. 300 yards is where you're going to start to see, um, major separations in performance based on ballistic coefficient. Yeah. I remember reading about Lieutenant Colonel Jeff Cooper talking about the morning glory effect, uh, with, uh, with a variety of cartridges and that, you know, there was a huge amount of similarity in, in flight characteristics out to, you know, that 300 yard mark. And then things started to change. And, uh, you know, the cream started to rise to the top for, for some rather than others. Yeah, that's, uh, I'll take this, I'll take this chance to kind of stab at a, um, 
misconception that comes up a lot, which is, so for example, I've, I've heard this for years that um, boat tails have no advantage within say 300 yards. And mm -hmm. the reason is because, you know, well, it's not until long range that that effect will kick in. And it's kind of bothersome be, you know, someone is detail oriented and, you know, this is kind of my life, <laughs> the, the words matter. And so um, the, the, the truth of it is that a boat tail is reducing drag at the moment it comes out of the barrel. Um, it's reducing base drag. It's making your BC higher. So it's not that it isn't doing anything within 300 yards. It's, it's working. It's doing its thing. But its thing doesn't really culminate as anything noticeable until you get to 300 yards. And then the separation is different enough that people would call it substantial. And so that's what it's done. It's really just it's been working all along, but it just finally reached a threshold by 300 yards. You can say, oh, now I see the advantage of having the boat tail. That's, that's just the nature of ballistic coefficient. It has a cumulative effect that gets more and more obvious with more, the longer it flies. Um, whereas muzzle velocity is an initial condition. So, you know, the benefits of high muzzle velocity you see right out of the barrel. You know, you have less drop immediately at 200, 300 yards due to high muzzle velocity. Um, but the effects of BC, they take more distance to show up. And I think 300 yards is a basically where that, that beginning of separation is. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, the next question is uh, from El Chorizo Blanco. These names crack me up. Um, given a perfectly temp-stable powder charge, does density altitude have a measurable effect on muzzle velocity? Oh, I see what he's getting at. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think so. I don't think that air density affects muzzle velocity. Um, we talked about humidity, how, you know, effects other than temperature can change how your powder burns. That can happen through humidity. Obviously, we know about the temperature effect, but just air density, like if you take ammo to a high altitude, if your muzzle velocity is different, I think it's probably due to something other than the air density being different. So there's something different about how your powder is burning up there or the condition of your barrel um, that's making it change velocity. But to, to the best that we have found, we haven't seen where, and, and we've done the math because we've considered it, you know, it's like, well, when the air is denser, that's more weight in your barrel that has to be evacuated. So the bullet has this back pressure from dense air that it's got to evacuate out in front of it. Whereas low density altitude, you're evacuating less dense air. And so the powder doesn't have as much back pressure to burn against as it's pushing the bullet. And, and we did the math on it and it turns out that it's, it's only like a fraction of a grain difference in the, the mass of air that you're pushing out at sea level versus like 10,000 feet. It's really, it's not significant in the, in the scale of like how much the bullet weighs. Sure. That's uh that's really interesting. Trying to, trying to measure that seems challenging. Oh, it's a calculation the, yeah. as far as like how much the air weighs in the barrel and then, yeah, measuring it is just, you know, set up your chronograph and, and shoot. And we, we have often seen our muzzle velocities different when we go to different places, but we've, and, and wondered about why, you know, the, Air density was one of our hypotheses, but what tracked a lot better with our experiments and what we were seeing was this powder humidity thing and how, you know, that can change when you go from one place to another and it's really dry. Gotcha. How does uh, density altitude affect the way the a given velocity of wind impacts a bullet? So if you have a high density altitude, um, say 10,000 feet and it's blowing, um, you know, 10 miles an hour at, at nine o'clock, is that going to do the same thing to your bullet as a 10 mile an hour wind at a thousand feet density altitude? Um, no, when the, when the density altitude is less, when the air is thinner, um, a wind of a given speed and direction will deflect your bullet less. Yeah. At high, at high density altitude in thin air, um, your bullet's performance across the board is better. You know, it's retaining velocity better, it's drifting less in the wind, it's dropping less. And, and all of those metrics, by the way, are attached to the bullet's 
velocity retention. Um, if a bullet loses velocity very gradually, like at high altitude, it's gonna lose, lose velocity more gradually. That means it's, it has a shorter time of flight to the target, which means less drop. And it also means less lag time, which is what wind deflection acts in. So overall, like shooting through thinner air is exactly the same as shooting a higher BC bullet in the same air. Uh, percent by percent, like if it's 10% thinner air, that's exactly like shooting a 10% higher BC bullet. They, they trade off one to one. And so all aspects of performance, including wind drift, will, um, will be less of an effect for the higher performance that you have at, at high, high density altitude. Gotcha. It can be, it can be tricky though on ranges, yeah. like as a competitor, they have standard flags that are, you know, nylon or like in Canada, they're canvas. And you, you get to know what wind speed looks like based on the ripples in the flag or whatever. And then you can go like Raton, New Mexico is one of the great examples because it's, it's a, uh, a range that a lot of people travel to that's a higher altitude than their home range. So they get there and the first thing they notice is like, well, I need like four or five minutes less elevation to get to a thousand yards. But then you, further, you'll notice that, man, when those flags are reading 10 mile an hour full value, I'm using less wind than I do when it's when those flags look just like that at sea level. And, and so the flags will indicate the same condition, but that condition has less of an effect because the air is thinner. Gotcha. Um... I see the same thing with, uh, with 3d archery competitions and for whatever reason, people are terrified to try to come up with flight characteristics of arrows or, or any semblance of something, um, getting close to the ballistic coefficient of an arrow in, you know, it's various configurations, but a lot of these, uh, summertime 3d matches are on, you know, ski resorts. So you start out in July at almost 10,000 feet in, you know, Montana or Utah or, or wherever you're at and everybody is shooting high. You know, most people are coming from a low elevation, certainly lower than that. And they all shoot remarkably high. And uh, yeah, it, it's something that people don't really try to take on is atmospheric impacts on arrows, but it's a real thing. Yeah. Yeah, I've thought about archery ballistics a few times and, you know, the idea of having like an, an atmospheric corrected fire solution or something. And, but, you know, the thing is, I've also got practical experience shooting archery. And in the, at the end of the day, it's just not that hard to, to move your pin. Like <laughs> it's, it's such a small change. You're shooting offhand. So the amount of error that you can resolve is 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 very questionable now in a case like you said where everybody goes from a C, basically a sea level zero to now everybody's at ten thousand feet well yeah in that case i could understand there being a gross offset that everybody notices um but for a guy that like what do you what do you usually cite your bow in for your backyard and where are you going hunting some people travel long distances but you know most people hunt after work is not far from their backyard and so you're not traversing a great deal of altitude or anything as you know, normally. And so, yeah, I just, I, I, someday, again, that's another thing on the list of someday, maybe we'll, you know, get into archery ballistics, but I think there's a lot more fish to fry before then. I mean, launch dynamic of the arrow alone, you know, you talk about ballistic coefficient, at least with rifle bullets, we can make the assumption that the thing is the same shape the whole time that it's flying. Right. Whereas with an arrow, you know, if you've seen them at high speed, the the spine flexes and the fletchings are not 100% rigid. They're also flexing and, and the helix is spinning the arrow up. And there's, it's not like you've got this clean circular cross section making its way through the air. It's kind of a messy deal going on. And, you know, the shooter just simply adjusts the pin for where it hits and, you know, go kill something. Yeah. No, that, that arrow is slithering its way um, for, oh, for quite yeah. a ways towards the target before it actually gains some stability. And that's why I put, um, I use four veins and I use a three degree offset because I want to stabilize that arrow as quickly as possible. And the best way for me to do that is by spinning it as fast as I can. Yep. Yeah. I agree with that. 
Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's an interesting problem for the, for the whitetail guys. Um, even for a lot of the elk guys, it, it really doesn't matter. The hunters that are going to notice this are the uh, mule deer and the sheep hunters, because that tends to be an early season, high altitude, high temperature type of hunt. And if they're going off of the way their bow is zeroed back home, they're going to hit high. And it, it's something that they really need to account for. And I, I truly hope that someday we can build this into our range finders so that in an archery mode, if, if we can teach the range finder a little bit about our specific arrow configuration, that it can help us with a, with a shot solution, with a corrected range for the conditions that we're in. I, I, I just, I absolutely believe it's doable. It's just going to take some work. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Um, what is preventing, you know, rifle accuracy from being perfect? Oh, lots of things. Um, but there's a few places to start uh, finding a way into this. Uh, we'll start with the bullet. I mean, we're dealing with something that is, you know, it's made of multiple parts um, by machines that are graded on economics. So, you know, high volume, high production rate machinery is making things that are multiple parts and spinning at hundreds of thousands of RPM. And what, you know, one of the most basic elements of dispersion is uh, from imbalance of a bullet. And, you know, bullets don't have much imbalance, but any amount that is non-zero is going to contribute to dispersion. And when I'm talking about balance, I mean, the, uh, this, how close the center of gravity of the bullet is to its geometric axis of rotation. Um, and the reason that's important is because when the bullet's in the barrel and it's spinning down the barrel, it's confined by its outer perimeter. You know, it's confined geometrically, mechanically in the barrel. And it accelerates up to its speed and its rotational speed. And the moment it leaves the muzzle, it, everything changes for the bullet. It's no longer constrained to rotate around its geometric center. It's now free to slot to rotate around its center of gravity. And if those two, if that center of gravity is right on the spin axis, then the bullet transitions perfectly and you could call that a perfect shot with no dispersion. But if the center of gravity is the least little bit not on the axis of rotation, which is real life, you know, it's, it's not going to be non-zero, especially every time, then what happens is it's like um, the center of mass will fly off on a tangent in whichever direction it was moving when it uncorks, when, it's, when it comes out of the barrel. It's like, think about having a rock tied to a string and you're spinning it around. And then the moment the bullet comes out of the barrel, it's like you let go of the string and the thing flies off laterally. It's really exaggerated, obviously, but when the bullet comes out, it may only pick up a tiny amount of lateral speed from this center of gravity being imbalanced, um, but that's enough to make your group size non-zero at 100 yards. Um, you know, when we run the math on it, modern bullets, like Berger bullets makes a big deal out of this. It, it's what set Walt Berger apart in his early days of Ventress was making bullets on jackets that he turned individually on a jeweler's lathe to ensure that there was no run out in the jackets and making bullets on jackets like that allowed him to shoot his way into the hall of Ventress hall of fame. Um, yeah. And so that became a standard for burger bullets that, you know, three ten thousandths of an inch. Okay. Not three thousandths, three tenths of a thousandth of an inch is the upper limit for what jackets, can be made with in terms of run out, because if you, if you keep the imbalance below that amount, you can still win Ventress matches. You know, the dispersion is very minimal. So with bullets made to that level, um, if everything else was perfect, you would still be shooting groups on the order of 50 to a hundred thousand. So like 0 0.05 to 0.1 inch groups. That's all the better that you would shoot if everything was perfect. Uh, just due to the imperfection and imbalance of the bullet. Gotcha. So that's, that's one thing. Um, another thing is when you have a mass going down a barrel, um, generating recoil, affecting the launch platform, 
um, that movement again is non-zero and it's it's always also not the same every time you know depending on how the rifle is supported um, you know that it's mostly back but there's a little rotation in the barrel also and the fact that that movement doesn't happen exactly the same every shot means that the barrel is physically going to be pointing at a different exit, uh, different exit point every time. And that will also cause, you know, your accuracy to be non-zero groups. Yeah, and then we add in things like, like powder and um, shooter error and atmospheric conditions and, and wind. Wind is king. And, and, in my mind, you know, a lot of this stuff is math and then wind is, wind is art and people who can accurately determine what the wind is doing between them and their target are, are magicians. Oh yeah. Yeah. And especially in long range shooting, um, if you don't have a handle on the wind that, you know, you're, you're basically just playing the lottery, trying to hit your target, but it is, it is one of the, and I say it's, underrated even though most long-range shooters know it's the most important thing i still think it's underrated the importance of wind and here's why because all those guys who say yeah i know wind is king wind is the key wind is the biggest thing that we deal with even those guys um don't always spend their time according to that like you know they're still um spending a lot of time at the loading bench maybe more than necessary you know, spending, spending money on a, a new scope or a new rifle instead of spending time on the range. Like if everyone really internalized just how important wind was and everyone's goal really was to hit targets at long range, all of us would be on the range practicing a whole lot more than we're surfing the internet for our next piece of equipment, you know, or trying a, a test with our hand loads to try to eke out a little smaller group none of that stuff matters compared to your ability to read wind and it's it that doesn't seem to manifest as a priority to to most shooters you know some guys it does i'm not i'm not throwing stones here i'm the same way uh there's only so much time in the day there's only so much you can go to the range but that really is um if there's and i talk about this in military application too you know they want to know like what's the best equipment for overcoming the effects of wind or developing equipment to actually read the wind. It's like, you know what guys, the best bang for the buck that you're going to get if you want to increase lethality is training. You know, it's not a new piece of kit. The guys have, well, I can't speak for all of them, but some of them have really great kit and are limited more by their practice in using it than, than the equipment itself. So, that's one area that I, you cannot overstress to a long range shooter is not only is wind the most important thing, but in order to do well at it, you have to put in the time, put in the work practicing. And I think that's, that's what the Marine Corps kind of developed as a strength because their kit is garbage. Literally it, it's what the <laughs> army gave them that the army had broken. It was like, we don't want this anymore. And the Marines are like, sweet. Sounds like it's for sale. And like the, the rifle that I shot with in the Marines had so much slop in it that it, it rattled like a tambourine when you carried it. I would, I would stuff things between the upper and lower receiver to keep it from rattling. So it wasn't as loud. And when I shot it, I had to physically twist the gun to take up the slack in it. And I was having to shoot a 14 inch barrel 223 out to 500 yards and do so accurately. And I did, mm -hmm. but I had to do my part so well because I knew that I had junk equipment. And I, I think that there's, there's, there's some strength to be gained from that. But uh, if we put that same amount of effort into good equipment, then we could get a much better result. And that's where I'm hoping we end up. One of the, the more fascinating things to me about the tables that I've seen um, in your literature, in your books, is the probability of hit given wind uncertainty. And for me, when I'm shooting at an animal, I need hundred percent. I need to know in my mind and in my heart that when I press that trigger and take the leash off that bullet, that it is going to go out there and kill that animal. You have laid out wind uncertainty in a way that's like, Hey, if you're, if you are off by three miles an hour, plus or minus at this range, 
then this is the probability that you're going to hit the target. That stuff is fascinating to me. And I think it's something that hunters really need to look at and open their mind and be like, okay, what's my percentage? You know, am I a hundred percent guy? Am I a 70% guy? Like, what do I need to be able to fire this round at an animal? Um, can you go into those, those charts and tables a little bit? Yeah. So the, the idea for that, um, I brought from the air force, actually, the, the weapon employment zone or the WES is something that, um, fighter pilots use to characterize the range of their weapons. Um, so, you know, they have things called RMAX one, RMAX two, our men, and these are all ranges at which certain missiles will, you know, like RMAX two is a no escape zone. So like, that's your hundred percent. You, you pickle a shot at a guy at this distance and he can't get away from it. Um, RMAX one is a different characteristic that's saying, all right, if he continues on his current course, you can hit him at that range. But if he turns and runs, you might, your percentage goes down. Um, and so that's kind of where the WES for small arms came in is I wanted to quantify in terms of hit percentage, the space around a shooter and based on the target sizes and, you know, the, na the nature of the environment in terms of uncertainty. And, and so that's what I did is adopt that doctrine um, and made a tool to do it for small arms. And that's the applied ballistics analytics software that generates those hit probabilities. And, you know, getting to the, the hunter scenario, it's always been possible to characterize your potential missed distance on a target um, as, a, as a matter of wind uncertainty. You know, you could just suppose you've got a 700 yard shot and it's a 10 mile an hour wind, but, you know, you can't read it perfectly. So maybe it's eight or maybe it's 12 miles an hour. Well, with a ballistics program, you can run it for 10 miles an hour and then run it for eight and then run it for 12 and just see how much difference there is in wind drift. And suppose it's 12 inches. Um, well, you know what 12 inches looks like on your target. So accepting that you have a two mile an hour wind uncertainty is basically showing you a plus or minus 12 inch bracket around your intended aim point. So you've always been able to sort of qualify your missed distance from wind uncertainty in that way. But what the WES program does is it basically simulates a thousand shots within the parameters of uncertainty. So if you say I'm plus or minus one or two miles an hour on wind, it's going to model that as a bell curve with a central tendency and be like, all right, you're, you're most of the time going to be within one mile an hour. And sometimes you'll be as far off as two miles an hour. So it models that error as a normal distribution, like in the real world. and then gives you a probability like it simulates a thousand shots now and it simply tells you counts them how many of those shots were within the the target size and how many you know how many weren't and that's your that's your hit probability so it's um i think it's a really good tool for because it's one thing to know my bracket is plus or minus 12 inches at that range it's also it's a different way of hearing the same information to know that well if your vital zone is eight inches at that distance that means you have a probability of say 25% of hitting that with plus or minus 12 inches of uncertainty. So it's just a different way to look at it. That's more action oriented. You know, you can, and it's closer to how our brains see, work. Exactly. Right. It's like, what are my chances? What are yeah, my we, chances? We think in odds shot? all the time. It's like, you know, am yeah. I going to, am I going to roll the dice and be like, Oh, 50, 50, let's see. No, I'm not. And you know, having that, that hard data, is, is really challenging to people that, that know that they can't guess wind within five miles an hour. And they're going to go ahead and take that shot until they look at it and be like, Oh crap. Like I'm taking a 30% chance of failure right now. Um, that's unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that, that using these tools to increase our ethics is really important. The last thing I want to ask you about Brian is, is your Academy. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so um, the Science of Accuracy Academy is something new for us. We just stood it up a couple weeks ago, and it's an online resource for uh, long-range shooting information. And so it's kind of twofold. It's, it's sort of catching us up uh, with our technology in terms of like our books and our DVDs, you know, that we've had for years now. 
And, you know, DVDs haven't been selling that well. Who, who has a DVD anymore? You know, lots of people don't even have a DVD player. And so uh, we're taking all that video content and we're hosting it on this academy uh, to stream as well as, you know, the books. We're, we're not hosting the books like in PDF format. Instead, we're having podcasts around the books and the chapters. So uh, Mitch and I or Francis and I will sit down and pick a chapter from a book. And we'll just have a podcast on it so that whether you've read the book or not, you can follow along. And it gives us a chance to, you know, talk about the content of the book as from the point of view of the people that did it. That we're like, oh, I remember when we did this test, here's, here's what we tried that didn't work and wasn't in the book. And it also gives us a chance to kind of update about what's happened since then. I mean, some of this stuff's been published for, you know, seven or eight years and it's, we've learned since then. And so this podcast gives us a chance to sort of catch up on what's happened since it was printed. So it's really a modernization of our book and DVD content. Oh, and the seminar content, um, you know, COVID started and it really killed the seminars that we used to have um, people that people would travel to. And so, you know, now we do Zoom calls and we can record them and host them from this academy as well. So it's really just a modernized adaptation of the same kind of stuff we've always done, just hosted in a more modern way. You know, the podcast, the streaming videos, um, we're going to host lots of data, you know, bullet data for downloads. So it's, I would say that's how I describe it. It's a modern adaptation for, for us to channel our information out of our testing in our, our ballistics lab here. How do people find it? Um, it's the science of accuracy.com. Um, anyone who follows me on Facebook is hearing about this regularly. I've been promoting it from there. Um, but it's, it's pretty simple to find the science of accuracy.com and it, it's the science of accuracy Academy, but it's at the, it's at the address, the science of accuracy.com. Awesome. Uh, are there other ways for people to follow along with what you're doing, what you're learning, what you've already published? Um, that's the, that's the big one that we're channeling everything to. Of course, we have our, our social media channels, um, the Applied Ballistics Facebook and Instagram page. And there's one that I've been maintaining as well. Um, the Brian Litz Ballistics Facebook page and Instagram page. Um, those are kind of what, you know, those are our platforms for getting the word out. Yeah. And, uh, useful stuff up on there. No, it, it it's, it's fantastic. And they're, they're small little bits of just incredibly interesting stuff that, that makes me think more about this process and in this, you know, magical flight of a projectile through the air. I, I encourage people to follow along. If, if you're interested in learning more about this stuff, these books are dense. You can learn more than you could ever think to question on your own by, by following along and picking this stuff up. And it's, it's our duty to continue learning as hunters and shooters so that we can be as accurate and as lethal as, as possible. This is a great place to get that knowledge. Brian, I cannot thank you enough. Like, I really, really appreciate your time. I've been looking forward to the show for a long time. And uh, the contributions you've made to shooting are, are simply unparalleled. I'm grateful and, and just, yeah, I appreciate the hell out of you. You're a smart dude. Thanks a lot, man. I'm just, I'm doing what I love and I'm one of those lucky people that can do that and, and make a living at it. So um, I, I'm really uh, grateful that I can be of use uh, to this community and, and the work that we're doing here has, has application. Um, so yeah, thanks for having me on. I, I appreciate it as well. Yes, sir. My pleasure. So I found this old ad and there's like dudes dressed up like construction workers and a guy's got a jackhammer and there's a crane and you know they're moving all these big steel beams and stuff Aladdin Stanley Thermos Stanley the tough all steel thermos bottle that's completely dependable they're showing this thermos like falling off this building and hitting all this other construction stuff and built to take a bounding year after year <laughs> get the top one Oh, it lands in a wheelbarrow. The guy grabs it out of the wheelbarrow. Now he's going to pour himself a cup of coffee. I love these cheesy old ads. And most of the time, like, they're lying to us, right? That's most of what marketing used to be, was just, like, telling a lie or, or at least telling a version of a lie that 
that made you think that you needed this thing. But I'll tell you what, when it's cold out like it is right now, the only way to keep liquid liquid and not freezing in your pack is by putting it in something that's insulated. So packing a thermos in the wintertime is really smart, whether it's for a hot beverage like coffee or if you just want to bring some water with you, which is a really important thing if you're going to be out adventuring around in this uh, in this snow that we've got all over the country. And I think you should be because it's a great time of year to get out and about. You know, this is both a comfort and a safety thing. If you want to get something from Stanley, which I encourage you to do, you can use the discount code 6RANCH. That's the number six in the word ranch. And that'll get you 25% off of just about anything on their website. Encourage you to do that. They're great supporters of the show and uh, great supporters of this audience. And I love you guys. So stay warm out there. Have a nice warm drink and uh, make sure you're drinking it out of a Stanley product. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.